Hey, hey, welcome back to another broadcast of In the Trenches. Today, I sit down with Paul Jarvis. Paul is a professional designer who has been working for himself since the 90s. His list of past clients include Microsoft, Mercedes-Benz, and Warner Music, among others. Beyond design work, Paul is also a prolific writer, and he might be best known for the counter-conventional ideas he shares in his blog, which have received widespread attention, including being retweeted by people like Ashton Kutcher and Ariana Huffington. You can find all of Paul's writing and his newsletter at his website, pjrvs.com. In today's conversation, Paul and I cover a lot of ground, including topics such as business growth, is it a good thing or a bad thing, why you should always seek to simplify and delete before you add more onto your plate, how and why you should personalize your marketing, why an evergreen strategy for courses is nowhere near as effective or profitable as an open closed cart launch strategy, and much more. So what are my big insights from today's conversation? Three things stand out. First, simple is almost always better than complex. Second, that you don't need to do things just because other people are doing them. And in fact, maybe you should more often do the opposite. And third, maybe you should delete the comments on your blog because blog comments may be the worst invention ever. You'll definitely have to listen to the interview to understand why I make that comment. Finally, if you'd like to check out the show notes of this interview, go to tomworkus.com slash paul-jarvis. Jarvis is spelled J-A-R-V-I-S. All right, ready for the interview? Let's get to it. So Paul, I think the most interesting place to start, or at least the thing that I'm most interested in hearing from you, is your perspective on quote-unquote growth and maybe how that's evolved over time, if it has at all, and whether growth is a good or bad thing. Kind of your take on it, generally speaking, then we'll kind of get deep on it. Yeah, I mean, this is possibly one of those things where I hold a slightly wacky and counterintuitive opinion to the masses or other people in my space. So I'm stoked to talk about it. And I think to begin, I would just like to, I guess, say that things like personal growth, like growing as a human being and learning, always up for that. Mm-hmm. I think that kind of growth, that kind of growth is not what I'm talking about or going to talk about here. The kind of growth that I think where I have a varying opinion from a lot of other people is in business or in the, I guess, and I hate to call it like lifestyle business, but I don't know another word. Like when people work for themselves and they sell things on the internet, because I think every business is a lifestyle. I think that if you work for a startup where that consumes your life, you have definitely ascribed to a very specific lifestyle because it consumes your entire life. Or if you're working at a venture-backed company, you're beholden to the investors and then your customers, and that's a lifestyle. So I think when you're working for yourself as kind of like a small business or a one-person business or a solo entrepreneur, whatever you want to call it, even though I think it's a lifestyle business, I think all businesses are lifestyle businesses, like the longest way to get into what you actually asked me about ever, but I will proceed. So I think growth for business For myself personally, I don't want growth. So I run a one-person company. I have for almost 20 years. It'll be 20 years in February of 2018, which is ridiculous. And I feel really old. But (laughs) I haven't ever wanted to grow my business. And that hasn't changed since the beginning. Or I guess in the beginning, I had no way to grow my business because I had no money and not very many clients. But then as I kind of got more popular and could charge more. I could have at that point, because I was doing web design at the time, 
I could have hired other web designers or a project manager or like a CFO because I have no idea how that works. I still don't know how that works. But I decided that I wanted to do the work that I like doing. I didn't want to evolve a business where I would kind of promote myself out of the job I actually liked because I don't like managing people. It's not fun for me. I know other people who are really good managers. I am not a really good manager and I don't like doing it. So because I like designing and writing, I want to be in a business where I am doing designing and writing. And so I don't like the idea of for myself and in a lot of people, because I wrote a book about this and a lot of people that I've talked to, they don't really prescribe to the idea that like growth in all directions makes sense. So even things like money, I don't need to make more than a certain amount of money. Once I've made enough money, it just becomes theoretical, which kind of goes against capitalism. And yeah, I'm a dirty socialist Canadian, but there's still capitalism here. And so I think in a lot of ways, businesses don't necessarily need to grow unless they have to. And what I mean by that is that growth isn't always good. It's sometimes good. And a lot of people don't kind of take a step back to think about that. But I really think that they should. Cool. So I'm wrapping my head around this concept because I've been thinking about that a lot in this particular, this exact thing that kind of you're describing. So I think it was, even if it was a long segue into it, I think it was appropriate because I think there's a few things I wanted to highlight. So this idea that kind of, you know, you've been doing this for 20 years, like that's remarkable kind of essentially being a one man show and we can probably dive into that. But also this thing that you said about, I don't want to evolve a business where I would promote myself out of the job that I actually like doing. I think that's such a powerful sentence and and phrase and just idea that people could really embrace. Here's my question for that though. Like you might know what you like, but how do you know what you definitely don't like until you try it out? Yeah. Before I started to work for myself, I was a creative director at an agency. So I had to manage a bunch of creatives and I realized that was like hurting cats and I realized how much I didn't like to do it. So I have actually grown my business in little spurts and then scaled back. So I think you're right. It's interesting because like you can have a conceptual idea of what you want. It's just like if anybody in the entire world is like, oh, I want to write a book. I'm like, well, have you written a book? And they're like, well, no. And so they they like the idea. And I think it was was Austin Kleon who said that a lot of people like the idea of the noun, but not the verb. So you like the idea that you want to be a writer, but you don't like the act of writing or you just don't do the act of writing. The reason that you and I write books is because we sit down every single day and write. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if people have kind of a separation between the noun and the verb, then the noun isn't ever going to happen. And I think the same is what we were just talking about, where it's I've tried the things and I don't like managing. So I don't want to be a manager or I don't want to run a company or I don't want to do any administration work whatsoever, which still should happen in a small business, but it doesn't always. Yeah, I like it though. And I think then it sounds like if there's like a particular idea to take away from that or something that would be applicable would be if you're listening to this and you haven't gotten to the point where you kind of know exactly what you don't like or or at least reflected on enough to say for certain you don't actually like it, you know, feel free to try things out. But I think what's really cool is actually then, you know, that next step, it's once you kind of know, like you probably have an inkling of what you don't like. I think that's the thing I have a sense when you're talking like, I have that inkling of a couple things that I know I don't like and I'm doing right now. And it it begs the question is like, well, why do it? Maybe Mm -hmm. I could actually, I could get rid of that. Like maybe that could be deleted, not even delegated or outsourced or whatever, but just straight up deleted. If I just changed my surroundings a little bit, at least in like the business that I'm running, 
and restructure it that way. So has that kind of been a part of what you've done? Like essentially being intentional about like, I'm going to keep writing, I'm going to keep doing the design work and just being intentional that you don't allow anything else to kind of seep in that could pull you away from those core things that you enjoy doing. Yeah. I mean, a lot of questioning growth is just saying no. (laughs) It's hard though. It completely is because a lot of us solve business problems with more, right? So if we have, say, a lot of support to do, we hire more support people because that's easier than fixing the thing that we're selling and making it so it doesn't require as much support. I know because I've gone in both directions for that specific example. So a lot of times the easiest solution is growth. And the harder solution is to fix something like one step back so growth isn't required. So maybe you can make a bit more money by not hiring like three or four support. And that's just an example. That's interesting though, because I literally did that this year. I went the growth route and mm-hmm. we were rocking and rolling. And then it just got to a point where it's like, wait a second, I've like, I've accidentally created an agency. Yeah. And I'm like, man, I really don't like this. And so I, I looked at how I could scale it back and remove, you know, friction from the process so I could just handle the things that I want to handle. And it really did streamline everything. And and I would say what's crazy is I'm more profitable than ever because mm-hmm. of that. And that's been a light bulb moment for me this year. Awesome. If I write another book on the subject, I'll interview you for Perfect. it. Because that sounds like a great case study for the book that I just finished. So Ah, well, I'll read it. <laughs> I'll read it in 2019, right? Yeah, exactly. Traditional publishing, man. That's interesting. So you also have some other fun like ideas and, and perspectives on business and life in general and how you kind of prioritize those things. Do you ever get pushback on these ideas of growth? Growth in particular is something that a lot of people do. They put it on a pedestal. I get it because I understand like a you know bigger company, if it's not growing, well, it's probably dying. But for like the freelancer, the coach, consultant, the solopreneur, so to speak, that's not necessarily the case. So I'm just curious kind of what kind of pushback you've gotten from this idea and kind of what your perspective is on that, like how you respond to critics of your criticism of growth as kind of the epicenter of what you should be doing. Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest critic for that is me. Right? Like in my head, I'm like, are you a f- idiot? Like when I was doing web design specifically doing client work, now I kind of do product work more. So it's easier to scale in the ways that make sense to me. But when I was doing client work, I was thinking like, okay, you have like a six month waiting list or an eight month waiting list. Like, why are you resisting this? And I would keep coming back to, well, like, what's the purpose of me working for myself? Because it's easier to work for somebody else. It's so much easier to work for somebody else. So if you are going to work for yourself, you have to make it work in a way that works for you. Because if you are working for yourself and you're unhappy with the way that it's working, like if your boss sucks and you're the boss, then you've got to kind of figure that out internally, right? You can't just blame it up, which is what a lot of people do if they work for a company. Mm. Oh, I'm unhappy. This is my, my boss's mm-hmm. fault. If you're the boss, then you're kind of blaming yourself. And so you have to kind of think like, what's the purpose of working for yourself in the first place? Because if it's to make all of the money, then do whatever it takes to make all of the money. If it's to be a little bit happier than working for somebody else, then by all means, figure out exactly what you need to do in your life and in your work to make yourself a bit happier than working for somebody else. I mean, it's still work, right? Work is called work, not like super happy rainbow fun time. Whether you work for yourself or not, there's still things that need to be done. Mostly what I'm talking about is like bookkeeping. Right. You can always outsource that. Yeah, which I definitely do. And I mean, I outsource a lot of stuff. I have a team of probably about six or seven people that I work with. 
So they don't work for me. I just hire them as freelancers and I don't have to manage them. So the way that my small business or company of one or whatever you want to call it works is that I pay more for the help that I need where it makes more sense for me to pay somebody than do it myself, whether it's saving time or saving money or, or whatever it is. I always hire the best person that does the thing. So I end up paying them more, but I have to manage them less. So my bookkeeper, I don't have to talk to. She just does all, like she just knows how to do all the things I need. Or my copy editor, he knows my voice so well that he can take my articles, copy edit them, and just email me at the end and say like, hey, this is ready to put in a MailChimp. So I would rather pay more and manage less. And that's what specifically works for me. So I don't really need to, like I would never want to hire these people full time. I don't even know how that would work. There would probably be like benefits and 401ks or RSPs. And, like I don't care about any of that stuff because it takes me away from the purpose that I exist as a business in the first place. Yeah. And that does take a, a certain amount of self-reflection to get to that point where you can say, yeah, it's like, that's why I exist. I think that's an important piece of that. But I also do like the fact that this isn't just like, oh, what I think is important is you're not saying you have to do everything yourself. Quite the contrary. It's just you don't have to build out a team just for building out a team's sake, which I think is an important point. Yeah. And a lot of people think that just because they work for themselves, they have to work by themselves. Mm. And I don't know anybody that does really well as like a small business that is just like, imagine the skill set you would have to have, like imagine the generalist skill set you would have to have to do everything. It would be tough. Yeah. You know, I, okay. So I want to shift focus to kind of how then you've structured your business. And I know this is something that not everybody's going to do, but there's going to be, I think, lessons and takeaways of looking at how you do it, how others can kind of reflect on it and think about how they could do it themselves, how they could restructure things. So, and the one of the things I want to focus on specifically with, with that in mind was your writing. You write every day, right? Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, probably four days a week I write, which I pretty much work four days a week. So that kind of, I write every day that I'm working. Right. And so, and you don't have like a typical approach to it, like a lot of, you know, their bloggers and podcasters out there. It's like everything you do is obviously very straightforward. You know, I'm curious, like what your take is on like, say two things, maybe like the purpose of a blog in your opinion now and going into the future, like what is the purpose of that? And also a newsletter, like, what do you feel like is the purpose of a newsletter for you and how you, how you operate? Yeah. So I think the answer is the same for both, <laughs> which is good. So now I don't have to remember the other question while I'm answering the first. Cool. Perfect. So I think the purpose of a blog or a newsletter, and I use my newsletter like a blog, which is why it's the exact same for me, is to help people. So oh, actually, there's two things. So the first thing is to help people because I like to be helpful. That makes me feel good. That inflates my ego or whatever. It's both good and bad. But when I feel helpful, I feel valuable and I feel better about myself. So it's a win. And then obviously I'm helping other people and then they feel good and they feel valuable. And then it's a win for them as well. But I think that the other part to that is you want to give people a taste because typically, especially if you're running a business and you're not just blogging for the sake of blogging, which is totally fine too. But if we're talking about this in the context of business, then I think blogging or sending newsletters with blogs or, or whatever it is, you want to give people a taste. It's easier for me. And I've found this definitely to be the case is I would rather people not buy something from me right away, which is why I think in my welcome letter, I talk about getting the person's name tattooed on my inner left arm. I'm not selling anything right mm -hmm. away because I don't want anybody to buy something from me right away. I want them to figure out if I'm the right person to teach them or the right person to help them. Because then that means I have to do less work on the back end. I do almost no refunds because 
one, I try to make my products as good as possible. But two, I try to make sure that if somebody's going to buy something, they know exactly what they're going to get. They know my teaching style. They know that I talk too fast and I'm weird. I'm quirky. And I swear, like all of those things, I try to let people know who I am because I found as well that a lot of people buy from me, not because of the topic, but because of how it's presented and how it's presented is me. So a lot of people, and I did a survey, so weird. I did a survey for my audience. I think it was last November about reason. And I only emailed the people who had purchased something from me. And I was trying to dig into the, the reason why, which is really weird because it's me. So it, it feels kind of personal. But what I found to be the main reason why people buy is because they like me, which is both scary mm really scary and really awesome because so many people have courses for freelancers or growing a business or using a newsletter. But the reason people are buying from me is because they want my take on it. It's just like a, you and I write books that would be considered, I guess, business books. There's probably a couple hundred thousand, maybe a million business books on Amazon. The reason people are buying from us is because they want to hear our take. They want our voice. They want our opinion on that thing bringing it way back to the beginning. The reason for a blog or a newsletter is you want to give people a taste of who you are. You want to tell people what you believe in, what you feel, what you kind of, if you have any counterintuitive opinions. And I think I talked about that in the first email as well, like what my contrarian beliefs are about business. So I list that out in the first email. So then if they buy something from me two months, six months, 18 months, 12 years later, then they know exactly what they're going to get. That's really why I send a newsletter every week is because I want to be valuable and helpful and I want people to get to know me. So if they're going to buy something, they're making the right decision for themselves. I love that. Now, when you think about helping too, you write about, a, you know, I would say a plethora of content as well. You hit on a lot of different points. So how do you, I guess, conceptualize that person who you're helping? Is it just you're writing essentially kind of like helping yourself or a younger version of yourself? Or do you actually kind of have a, you know, a clear picture of like who the person is that's typically reading your work? Are, you know, are they creatives by nature or writers or, you know, solopreneurs or that kind of thing? Like, or do you just kind of feel it out and produce what feels right? Yeah. So in the beginning, I was thinking about, okay, who's like a specific person or very tiny group of people that I want to reach? Because in the beginning, I wasn't reaching anybody. Nobody, nobody was on my mailing list because everybody starts with a list of zero. And so I started to think about, okay, who is the type of person that I want to reach? Because I think a lot of people don't realize that you can choose your audience just like your audience can choose you. And I've made a ton of mistakes there. Like my first book was a vegan cookbook. I realized early on, even though I'm vegan, I love being vegan. I don't want to reach other vegans. Like that's the, the worst idea for me in terms of audience. So the second book was a, an online business book. So in the beginning, I started to think about who are the people that I want to reach? Who are the people who I would enjoy communicating with? Because if you're reaching an audience, that means you're probably or hopefully communicating with them all the time. And so I started to build an audience based on the type of people that I wanted to reach. And then after time, as my audience grew, now I just look at my inbox because I probably get two or 300 replies to every newsletter I send every week. So I can easily see what people are working on or struggling with or wanting for, I get people all the time. Hey, Paul, have you written about this? And I either reply with like, yeah, here's the article. Cause it's hard to search the archives on my site and I should fix that. Or it's, Hey, that's a good idea. Or if 10 people emailing me asking about the same thing, I'm like, hmm, if 10 people are asking me, there's probably a couple hundred people who want to know or a couple thousand people who would be interested in reading about that. So now I just kind of use my, like my inbox is, is my content mine 
So I just go in there, I dig around a little bit, I find some nuggets, and then that's what I write about. I like that. What was your decision? I don't know if you ever started with comments, but I noticed like you don't do comments on your blog. Is that you know structural? Is that what's your take on that? And I'm sure you get this a lot. So yeah. So the the first reason is because I don't want people to leave a comment. I want people to sign up for my mailing list. So everything on my website, mm. like it looks like a boring plain website, but all of it has been A B tested and thought about probably to death. So the main thing I want people to do when they go to my website is to sign up for my list because I know once they're on my list, if they like the content, if they find it valuable, they're going to buy something from me. If they buy something from me, they're more than twice as likely to buy more things from me. So it fuels my entire business. All of my money is made from my mailing list, whereas comments are just people talking. I would rather people get the article, which shows up in an inbox, their inbox anyways, if they're on my mailing list, reply to me, and then we can have a discussion about it. So I don't have comments for that business reason. The second thing is I think comments are the worst thing that ever happened to the internet. <laughs> and it's mm. just it's just a bunch of like vitriol and garbage. So and I have I every single other person on the internet. I have to deal with hate and people being angry and mean about it's not like I don't even write about like abortion or politics. Like I'm writing about being creative or working for yourself. Yeah. So it's kind of weird that people get so angry about that kind of stuff. <laughs> but it, but it happens. And I just rather not deal with it. The other thing is I would rather be writing or answering emails from subscribers than looking at and filtering and moderating comments. Like, I don't want my day to be filled with comment moderation, so I don't have comments on my website. Well, I'm deleting my comments after this. And that, yes. that, that's been in my head for a while. Like, I'm like, why do I keep this here? Hmm. And I haven't given it much thought, but I know there's no good reason to. And so that's kind of like, I've just left it. So it's like status quo, I have comments. But I love the intention behind what you're doing because actually I'm very intentional about a lot of things on my site too. And it's like, well, what is the point of those comments? I think maybe for some types of blogs and podcasts, it could be useful, but that's definitely been something that's been in my head for a while. And I think what a great idea. It's like, just focus that instead of comments, what can you just direct people to? So for mm -hmm. you, it's your, your newsletter. So, okay. So what are some strategies that you use or what's your approach then to the newsletter? You said you make all your money from it. I know it's, it's being helpful first and foremost, but at this point, you've, you know, you're a seasoned pro when it comes to this kind of stuff. How do you approach the newsletter from a, you know, I, d I don't really like this word, but I like a monetization standpoint from a, you know, a sales standpoint when you like launch your products or services, like how do you approach that? Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of that comes down to a few different kinds of personalization. So email marketing kind of doesn't work where it's just fire hose, where it's just like, spray and pray where you email your whole list every single email that you send out and hope that they do the thing that you want them to do. And I mean, that's the same as like buying an ad in the yellow pages or putting a commercial on tele. Like, it's just a blanket thing that doesn't have much thought put towards it. Whereas the way that I like to work my emails is if I want to be helpful, if I want to be valuable, then I have to send the right email to the right people at the right time. So that means if somebody's purchased something, I'm not going to tell them to buy my product. They've already bought it, right? Or worse, I'm not going to tell people who have already bought a product from me that, hey, this thing that you bought, maybe you bought it at full price, it's on sale today. Like that. I don't know how many times I've got emails, especially from like massive people with much bigger businesses than mine, where I'll have bought something from them at full price. And then a week later, I get an email saying, hey, such and such is on sale. I'm like, really? Like every ESP, every email service provider 
gives you a way if you set it up right to segment out buyers. So that's one example of personalization. Mm. The other thing is I run a bunch of surveys or simple forms in my newsletter a bunch of times a year. So I'm kind of seeing like, are you a freelancer? Are you a corporate worker? Do you own or run a startup? And then I can kind of tailor emails for the products that I sell to those people. Or maybe those people get more emails about a launch and people who don't do those things get less. Maybe they just get one email about those things. And then I have a bunch of, for the each specific product, I have a bunch of funnels. And in the funnels, there are surveys. So they fill in a survey. They tell me like what they're looking for what they're struggling with, and then the emails that they get further along in the funnel speak specifically to those points that they just told me. So I'm not trying to say if somebody say they want to be a full-time freelancer and they're in the funnel for creative class, which is a freelancer course, or another person has been a freelancer for 10 years and they're in the funnel for the creative class. I'm not going to pitch them the same way because they have different needs and they may be able to get use from the same product but the value that they get from the product would be very different. So why would I send them the same email? So a lot of the way that I communicate with my audience is very personalized, not in the way that we're like, I sit and I write everybody an email that wouldn't like, I don't have the bandwidth for the volume that I have in terms of audience, but you can set it up with pretty much any email system where you're sending very specific emails to people at specific times. And I mean, that's like the way that money gets put into my bank account is that. Mm, I love it. And so I guess I'm, I'm curious too. There's a lot of people out there who I think are against like the launch process, like open, close cart, making things like evergreen. Mm-hmm. I know you have a couple offers there, some courses that like aren't available right now, but people can get on a waiting list. Tell me your, your opinion on this, but also kind of like why you do that, why you have a waiting list. And how does that impact, I guess, engagement, sales, and any other kind of like maybe key metrics that you really look at when it comes to something like this? Yeah. So like most things, I A-B tested this. Yeah. So I had a couple courses that were evergreen and they were doing really well. And then I tried a timed launch where the cart opens at a specific day and closes on a specific day. I blew all my evergreen courses out of the water in terms of just straight gross number of people signing up and gross revenue. And I thought about it. I'm like, why am I working at, because with an evergreen thing, you always have to be launching. You always have to be coming up with new ways to put urgency to sell your course or to sell whatever the product is. Whereas with the time launch, the urgency is it isn't open. Now it is. Now it's not. And for me, I just want to give people uh, like, are you in or you out? If you're out, 100% cool. I'm not going to pester you about it a ton, but make the decision. Here's all the information you need to make the decision whether the course is right for you. If it's right for you, get it now. If not, that's cool. And you can even, in the, auto, in the sequences, you can even say, like, remind me next launch. So maybe the time isn't right because they don't have the money. I wouldn't want to take somebody's money that can't afford something. So maybe they want to buy it next launch or next year. And I don't really care if somebody buys it now or in three years or whatever. Like I've been in business so long, years seem kind of much more compressed. And I think a lot of people, if they've been in business for a couple months or like a year or two. So I take the long-term approach where it's like, if you're not going to be a customer now, but you're interested, you'll be making enough money in the future where you can be a customer in the future. So that's totally cool. So I just like to give people like, you in or you out, get on or get out. And the other thing is that in doing time launches, so all my courses open twice a year, I don't have to be working on courses 12 months of the year. 
So this year I took four months to write a book. I didn't think about my courses. You can buy my courses. There's nothing to do for those courses. So I could focus just on writing a book. And then two months earlier than that, I was working on building out a software product. So I didn't have to worry about a whole bunch of other things. Like, oh, how am I going to pitch this course this month or this week? It was just like, no, those, those things are paused. I'll come back to them. I'll give those things 100% of my effort and focus when the time is right, which is usually like a month before they open. I'll put a ton of work into making it better and figuring out what I can add and, and all of that sort of stuff. But when it's not open, when I don't have to think about it, I don't. And then I can focus very specifically on the task at hand instead of, oh my God, I've got like 18 things to do with my business. And then I feel overwhelmed and then I'm not very productive and then I'm not very happy. And then my energy just kind of leaks out instead of like going in one specific direction. Mm, you know, this reminds me of a conversation I had with uh, with Roland Frazier, who's just like one of the smartest guys I've met. And he has a few different businesses or as a principal on a few different businesses. One of the things he told me was, that he always aims to make things as frictionless as possible. Mm-hmm. And that was like in the context of like starting up a Facebook page and sharing content on Facebook. Like he's like, if I have to go through like multiple steps, I'm not going to do it. So I just record on my phone and then I publish. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, you know what? Maybe it doesn't have to be the prettiest thing in the world. But if it's like useful advice and his is blown up, he's gotten tons and tons of followers. He's a very smart guy. And again, like you, I think it's important that you're talented to pull that off. But it's also something to be said, like even if you're super polished and shiny, if you don't have good content, like nobody will care anyway. Yeah. And I love this idea of like set the stage so that things are as frictionless as possible. I don't know. What do you, what, what's your thoughts on it? It sounds like that's exactly kind of what you're doing. You just haven't said the word frictionless. So that's just been in my mind. Yeah, it definitely is. And I think a lot of people think that there's a lot more required to run a bit. Like I've never had a Facebook account, never had a LinkedIn account. That's awesome. And I don't feel like I've missed out on like yeah. gazillions of sales or customers or audience members. Right. Because I'm not like the number two referrer to my website is Facebook. I don't need to be like, it's like if I go on there, I'm probably going to mess things up. So I don't need to be on those platforms to get value from those platforms. And I think about Facebook zero times a day because I don't have to. And a mm. lot of people say, and so right now I'm not even on, I think the only social network I'm on now is Twitter. So yeah, I mean, frictionless is definitely what I want. And I think about even for things like courses, like I'll beta test a course like it's a software product, because if every single person that buys something from me has a support request, then I don't have the bandwidth to handle that. So I would rather, it's just like we were talking about earlier, a lot of people solve with, with growth as the, because it's easier. I would rather go through and make something a course, for example, as frictionless as possible. So the person is onboarded as well as they can. So I get almost no support emails. And then if an email does come in, I easily have the bandwidth to handle the specific question that somebody has. Because 99.999% of the people who have purchased something from me got all of the information they need in a way that they could easily consume it and understand it and digest it. So they can just do the work. They don't have to ask me like, I don't know what to do now or I don't know where to fill in my username or my password or that sort of thing. So I try to make everything because I don't want to have a big company. So I try to think of, even when I'm coming up with software ideas, I think like, okay, what is this type of software something that would require a whole lot of support? If it is, I'm not going to build it. I don't care how much money I think it could make. So I'm always trying to think about like, okay, what can I do where I can focus on the work that I want to do and I'm not going to get consumed in other things or in other tasks? Mm, I love that. It's uh, It just seems like a very peaceful 
way to run a business and to be able to produce stuff that people like and enjoy and be fully, you know, doing what you really enjoy. That's what I really like about your philosophy. And it's actually kind of like, I'm like already making notes on things I'm going to kind of <laughs> start to implement. Cause that's the big thing on this podcast. I like, there's always like one thing I'm going to implement after every one of these yeah. conversations. This one's definitely getting rid of comments, but also awesome. just think about like how I can structure what I do to be frictionless, to be like the best it can possibly be to not only reduce my time, but I think also like the inverse of that is what you're really doing is you're providing a great experience for the user. Mm-hmm. You know, think about it. It's like if the support ticket has to be made, there means there's something off. You know, of course, there's going to be random stuff. But if you, if you looked at that, I think that that means there's fundamentally, there may be a problem, especially if you keep getting support tickets for like the same thing. So yeah. a, great, a great experience is one where nobody needs to submit a support ticket. Yep. So I think that's really cool. I don't know if that was like intentional as well on your part, but it seems like that is the case as yeah, well. Yeah, 100% intentional on my part. And it requires a lot of work to get to that point. But if it means that I spend a few more weeks working on something, so the end result is not getting that volume of support or not even just like, I want people to be happy. <laughs> what the, like if somebody spends $300 on something that I sold them, I want them to feel good about that purchase after they purchased it. Not just the like... FOMO, like, oh, I, I feel like I should get this. Everybody else is getting this. It's like, no, I want somebody to be happy because they bought it, not because they're thinking about buying it and it's stressing them out and they're getting anxious about it. If they're happy after they've given me that, making money is tough, right? Like, so if you're giving somebody else money, you want to feel good about that purchase. So I want people to be happy with what they buy. I want people to feel like there's value there. And the way to do that is to make it as easily digestible as possible, especially when we're talking about stuff online. The internet is held together with like, paper clips and duct tape most of the time. So the bar is set so incredibly low for things just working that when something does, I feel like it's a really pleasing experience. I love it. Well, Paul, I appreciate getting to uh, you know dive into your brain here and, and pull out some of these insights to share with others. I really appreciate your time with this. Where can people reach out if they're listening to this, they, they like your style, where can they reach out to find you and get in touch with you? And of course, sign up for your newsletter. Yeah. The newsletter, it's called The Sunday Dispatches, is the best way to, I guess, see what I'm writing and thinking about. If you Google Paul Jarvis, you'll find my website. It's pjrbs.com, but nobody ever remembers that. Luckily, the SEO on my name points to me. So if you just Google Paul Jarvis, you'll find me. I love it, Paul. Well, thank you so much for being on In the Trenches with us. Cool. Thanks, man.